Amen and amen. Before we get too far along here, I just want to express on behalf of our church family some condolences. Uh, many of you already know, but uh, this week uh, Sue Giltner lost her sister um, and Larry lost a brother. And so we certainly want to extend our condolences to you all and know that we love you all. We're praying for you. Um, and here for you. And so just I know that they would appreciate your prayers and a word of encouragement and just a just a shoulder to lean on as well during this time. At the same time, I want to express my thanks. Uh, Nathan has already done this, but I want to express my thanks as a pastor uh, for the wonderful week of VBS that we've had. Wonderful week. Um, though my kindergarten teachers may object to that a little bit, um, it was one that uh, we saw a lot of seeds planted and had the privilege of having uh, a lot of kids. We were averaged uh, just about 43, I think, is what our average ended up being um, for the week and an incredible chance to have stewardship of those children and their families for a while. And we pray that the Lord would do incredible things with those seeds. But uh, if you know of someone that taught, um, they are heroes um, this week. And so make sure you thank them for the, the obedience they showed, for the service that they showed this week. And thank you for all everybody that worked behind the scenes as well. I know there were many of you uh, doing things that, were, that went largely unseen uh, by the rest of us, and we want to thank you for that as well. Um, but we are blessed to be able to do that and certainly excited uh, to see how the Lord is going to continue to use that. If you would this morning, though, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 131. That will be one of our texts. Psalm 131, and then you're going to then you're going to go over just a little bit, and you're going to look for Habakkuk. Uh, if you know where Jonah is, go to Jonah, and then just keep going to the left or to the right, just a little bit. Okay, you're going to see uh, Jonah, you're going to see Micah, you're going to see Nahum, and then you will find Habakkuk. If you see Zephaniah and those guys, you have gone too far. If you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have gone way too far, um, and you need to back up a little bit. This morning, though, we, turn, we continue to look at our sermon series for the summer on worship. And we have been asking these questions about who do we worship, why do we worship. And the ultimate response to that is a reminder of what we've said week after week, that we were created to worship. All of creation was meant to magnify who he is and as believers especially, we are called to praise him, to make much of him, to help others to know what a treasure he is to us. And it should be something that comes out of us naturally. I heard lots of comments last week about the illustration that I used with the cheeseburger that many of you were like, that just made me hungry. And that's all I thought about for the rest of the service was the cheeseburger. But there is, there's some truth to that, right? That when we eat something that's good, when we enjoy something and the flavor of something, the experience of that is not complete until we, we get done chewing and we look at that dish or we look at that cheeseburger and we go, man, that's good. In the same way, when, when uh, our spouse or, or someone dresses up and you, you enjoy them, the, the experience is not complete until you say, my wife, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. 
In the same way, if, if that's the case, that we can do that with human relationships and we do it so naturally with little things, even like cheeseburgers, how much more then when we who have experienced the grace and the mercy and the beauty of God, how can we not praise him? How can we not say, you are wonderful, you are good, in whatever medium he gives us, whether it be through his word, through prayer, through singing, through our creativity. This week, as you have already picked up on, our look at worship turns to worship in silence. Those two words, uh, given our normal expectations of each one, may not seem to go together. But my hope is, is that this morning, as we look at the word, that we would understand the importance of making space in our life to just be quiet. If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 131, and then turning to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. A song of ascent of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have claimed, calmed, and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And then Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we speak this morning of silence, Father, that our minds would dwell upon who you are. That our minds would be reminded that our souls would be pierced as we think upon the greatness of who you are, whether it is in your creation, whether it is through our redemption, whether it is through the great and many promises that you have given and the ways that you walk through it with us in the here and now. Lord, that we would attempt to behold you and that this morning that we would be struck by your grandeur, that we would be struck by your holiness. Father, we pray. Lord, speak to us this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. These last several weeks, as has been our custom, we have looked at worship. And as a reminder... We have given a working definition to use as we go through that, and that working definition is to place supreme value on God. And this week, maybe, maybe more than others in some ways, it's good for us to remember that. And as we go through looking at silence, and by the way, I do understand the irony of the topic and how we are presenting it. Irony, and we're going to talk, or silence, we're going to talk about silence. We're going to make a lot of noise about it. But... 
this week, this, as we go through this week and, and as we talk about silence, I want you to keep in the back of your mind that definition, that play, we are to place supreme value on God and, and begin to make some connections, I hope, this morning on how sitting in awe of God, being still before Him, how that response to God is as worshipful at times as prayer and singing, and whatever other means we may come to him with. It is not the way, just as singing is not the way of worship, as the word is not the way of worship, but it is certainly one way of worship. And my prayer, my hope this morning as we look at his word, that we would understand what that looks like and why. We, of course, have been asking the questions last several weeks of what, where, who, and then we've been studying how. We've looked at the word, that there are various ways for us to worship, that we've looked at, we worship through the word. If we're going to say that we value him more than all things, then certainly we should value his words, just as we would value the words of, of a loved one who writes us a note or a letter. So too, we would value, we value his words and we, want, we desire to know them and to follow them. We pray, we respond we communicate back to him through prayer, through the spoken word. We communicate through singing. Last week, we looked at creativity, that there are uh, an almost endless avenues of worship through the passions and the desires and the gifts and the talents that he has given you. Last week, uh, at the end of service, uh, one of our members came up, and I was talking, and she shared with me about how her mom, she, she makes sure that every week there are fresh flowers in the church. She grows them, she has a garden, she takes care of them, and that is her act of worship. It's her way of showing that he is more valuable to her than anything else, and so she makes, in a way, a sacrifice on the altar. It was a wonderful representation of creativity and what we were talking about last week. As we continue, though, again, we look at this word silence, this act of silence as a means of worship. And as we look through Scripture, what we find is this is a fairly regular practice of believers to withdraw from all that is in the world, from everything that could distract us, from everything that keeps us busy and, and going all the time, to withdraw from those things and to find times of solace and solitude and silence to just focus. Certainly we see it even in the life of our Lord and Savior. The New Testament and especially the Gospels tell us time and again that he would withdraw from the crowds, that he would withdraw even from his 12 disciples, and that he would find times to be alone. That he would find times to, to just be with God the Father. To be known by him to listen, to pray. We see it in the life of Paul, in the life of Moses. At times, silence is forced. At other times, it is selected. That God may use those moments of relative peace and quiet to teach us things about ourselves, to teach us things about our fellow man, to teach us things about ourselves. This morning, 
though, as we think about silence, we're going to focus on these two passages in particular, Psalm 131 and Habakkuk 2, to see how silence communicates two things in particular, two kind of different things. But, and and we, could have, we could go on, we could look at other passages that help us to see how silence communicates other things, but we're going to start with these two. First, that silence expresses trust. Um, I, I don't normally do this, but I, I want to commend to you a book. Uh, it's, called, it's by Richard Foster. It's called The Celebration of Discipline, A Path to Spiritual Growth. And in that book, one of the disciplines that he talks about is silence. And he makes this comment. He says, one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others that we think, if we are silent, who will take control? The answer is that God will take control. But we will never let him take control until we trust him. Let me say that again. God will take control, but we will never let him take control until we trust him. So silence is intimately related to trust. How true that is. That when we are able to just be with someone, that it communicates to us and to that other person that there is a trust that is exhibited in the relationship. As we look at chapter 131, we see David communicating to us that his, this trust that he has in the Lord, this trust that he has in God through his silence. So look back with me at Psalm 131. If you're still in Habakkuk, flip back over. In verse 1, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He starts off by speaking of humility. That as he thinks through this God that he serves, this God that he worships, that his, his eyes are brought low, that his heart is humbled, that he does not endlessly talk about things that are too great for him. We can get caught, we all get caught at times in mindless conversations, pondering things that are too great for us to fully understand because we attempt to control and understand that which we simply cannot. So David says, there are times in life when I just remain silent, when I humble myself and I shut my mouth, because I realize that there are things too great for me. There are things that I simply won't understand. This does not mean that we shouldn't attempt to know him. We certainly should do our best to, to understand grace. We should do our best to understand his sovereignty, to understand his, his bigness, to understand his wisdom, to understand his mercy and his forgiveness and his love. At the same time, we come to those subjects with humility and at times silence 
understanding that we can never grasp the bigness of any of those things. That at the end of the day, though we try to give reason to everything, sometimes we simply cannot. So we silence communicates that humility and that trust that God knows what he's doing. It also, it also silence expresses trust through contentment. Looking at verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. He says that he finds in God this amazing contentment that he doesn't find anywhere else. This is something that our world, and we're going to talk about this with hope as well, but something our world constantly searches for. What is going to make me content? What is going to satisfy me? What's going to be enough? And we as human beings chase that all the time. You see people run to it that maybe an entertainment will satisfy, that it'll make me contentment. If I just do things that, that I enjoy doing, if I work hard enough, maybe I'll find it. If I, if I invest enough money, maybe I'll, I'll be able to gather enough that that'll bring me contentment and satisfaction and safety. Maybe it's in my family. Maybe it's in friends. Maybe it's in my hobbies. And we, we're chasing this thing. And in the end, what we find is we're chasing the wind. David says, in him, I find contentment. I find satisfaction that brings me to rest. He gives a kind of an odd illustration of a weaned child. A child that depends upon its mother for its meals. When it's held, especially by mom, what does it instantly start doing? It starts seeking what it can get, right? It starts searching for something. It's restless and it's looking constantly. But one of the beauties of, of having children is that moment when they crawl into your lap and they simply lay their head on your chest and they want nothing but to be with you. They, want, they don't speak. They don't talk. They just crawl into your lap and they rest. It's a wonderful moment as a parent to know that they're content in your arms, that they're content just to be with you. It's one that doesn't last forever, I'm told, and I'm not looking forward to that. But as children of God, when you approach him, do we approach him with an attitude of, he has already made me content he has already given me enough that I simply enjoy being in his presence, that I simply enjoy being next to him, and we don't need to speak. Or do we sometimes get in the habit of approaching him like that baby who gets near mom and we're constantly looking for what we can get? We have a laundry list of things that we need? Or are we content? We were talking in the office this week that it's one of the great moments in a relationship 
when you realize that you can sit with another human being or with your, and just not talk, to just enjoy one another's company and it not be awkward, but to appreciate their presence and to enjoy the experience together. Does that reflect your relationship with him? Silence expresses trust and humility and contentment, and it expresses it in hope. Look at the last verse there. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We talked about the world looking for contentment. Surely, if it looks for contentment, it looks more for hope. This week, I was standing and and conversing with some of our folks that came to our food pantry, folks that for all purposes, I, I don't believe them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the conversation that we were having broke my heart because it was a conversation about how the world is getting harder and how things are becoming more difficult, how chaos is increasing, how evil is increasing. And they're just, they, their answer was just to throw their hands up in the air and go, what shall we do? It just is what it is. And as I talked with them, it's, no, 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 we have hope. It is not a lost cause. It is not something that just is going to pass away. We have hope. It's not in our things. It's not in other people. It's not in an occupation or a goal. Our hope is in him. And David, in expressing his humility and his contentment, his message to the rest of Israel, his message to those that would hear it in the congregation was, in him I have found safety, in him I have found contentment, in him I have found hope. Come see for yourself. Oftentimes that hope is only best understood when we remain silent And we allow him to do the speaking. Habakkuk, while David speaks of silence in terms of trust, the prophet Habakkuk speaks of silence in terms of largely awe. If you would, turn with me to that passage. That verse that we just read, verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That verse gains more depth when we understand the context of what he is saying. So if you'll allow me to go up to verse 16 and follow along with me. The prophet is speaking to those who worship idols. He says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says a wooden thing to a wooden thing. Awake to a silent stone. Arise. Can this teach? In other words, can the idol teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk, the prophet here, speaks to those that would worship idols, those 
images that are made out of stone and wood and then overlaid with gold, and they would be placed in special parts of the house, the mantle or the, the windowsill, they, or there would be a shrine somewhere in the home or somewhere in another building built to this, this object that they would then come and sacrifice things to. And we look at that practice and we would say, well, we don't do that. If I go to your home, I'm not going to find probably, I hope not, an idol, okay, that would be uh, set in a part of the house with a little, maybe a little wooden table in front of it and, and different things portrayed, drenched in the blood of the sacrifices that you've been making for the last several years. And we would look at that and say, that's silliness. And yet, while we don't worship a maybe a physical idol, my guess is, is that all of us struggle with idol worship. That all of us have things in our life that we have placed there above God. Again, whether it be money, whether it be certain relationships, whether it be our job, whether it be ourselves, we all have idols in our life. But he draws a specific picture of a physical idol, something that, that has been physically made and now they look for. And it's interesting that he turns the tables on all of these things. As he talks about idols and what they do or don't do, and then he turns the table in verse 20. First, he says that he, God, is the true God. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, be going down, behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. He says, you worship your idols. You go to them and you desire them and you want them to, to speak to you and you want them to guide you. And he goes, but they are nothing. They're just things. And they're things that you have made and yet you think they control your life. How often do we do that ourselves? That we look at the idols that we have set up in our lives I'm going to use money as an example, but certainly it's not the only one. That we take this thing that we have created to be a tool in our life, and yet we have propped it up on a mantle to say and allowed it to run our lives. That we have found our safety in the, the gathering of money, the saving of money. That we have found our hope and our future in the retirement that we have been procuring for ourselves that in all of these things that we have we have taken this thing that we have made and we have placed it in a position where it runs our life whether we like to think that or not and yet money cannot guide us it cannot teach us it cannot speak life or death it can do none of those things. And yet, the holy God is in his temple. The one true God is alive and well. And in turn, and instead of being created, he is the creator. We showed that video earlier to the kids, and it was so amazing to watch them see all those things. But even as an adult, for me, there's an appreciation as I see it, all of these things, whether it's waterfalls or mountains or beaches or frogs or lizards or fish or, or whatever animal, you stand and you look at those things and you're like, wow, I didn't have anything to do with any of that. He did. 
He did. And when I stand at, in the valley and behold the grand mountain, I'm speechless. And when I stand on the mountaintop and I see the view, I'm speechless. When I behold the power of the ocean, I find myself speechless. Because I remember who he is and what he's done and what he's capable of. He goes on here. He says, not only is he the true God, but he is the wise God. Notice here that from 16 down or from 18 down, what we continue to see is that the idol itself is speechless, that it has no breath in it, that it can't say anything, that it can't teach anything. It is the worshiper of the idol who continues to speak. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. When we have idols in our lives, they teach us nothing. They give us nothing. Rather, we are the ones giving them power over us. We're the ones speaking, saying, do this in my life. Do this in my life. Teach me this. Oh, this must be this. And we interpret signs and times in our own fashion. And the worshiper of an idol is the one that does all the talking. The idol does nothing. And yet what we see in, with God is the exact opposite. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Rather than the, the worshiper being the speaker, when we come to the living God, it is the worshiper who does not speak. It is the worshiper who keeps silent. Why? Because it is God, the one true God, who does the teaching. You see, this whole, this whole, these three verses, he's, he's making the point. Does that teach? Does your idol teach you anything? No. What about the one true God? Yes. We see it in his word. We see it in life experiences. We see it through other believers in our lives. He teaches. He instructs. He blesses. He encourages. He challenges. He holds accountable. He speaks to us. Oh, friend, never once believe that God is silent towards you. He is trying to communicate. But for that to happen, you have to stop talking. It's hard. It's hard. I'm a fixer. When I hear a problem, I cannot help myself but want to try to speak something into it. And there are times that we are best left silent. To just hear him and what he is trying to do. He is the true God. He is the wise God. He is the holy God. He is fundamentally different than everything else in creation. He is set apart. He is perfect in his wisdom. He is perfect in his justice. He is perfect in his kindness and his grace. He is perfect in his righteousness. These idols, these things covered with gold and silver, they are not perfect. They are marred. They are scarred. There are flaws. We ourselves find those same things. Through our own life experience, we know it to be true that we are not perfect. And so when we stand before one who is when we stand before one 
that is all things, we should stand in awe. We should stand in amazement. In reverence. That when we approach a holy God, we approach the one that rules the heavens and the earth. The one that holds life and death in his hand. As Christ says, we approach the one that can destroy not just the body, but also the soul. And yet we also approach the one who loves us. That is worthy of all. It's worthy of our silence. Richard Foster, in his book, says this quote as well. He says, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in the muchness and the manyness, he will rest satisfied. Let me read that again. Our adversary, the devil, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in the muchness and the manyness, he will rest satisfied. We just, I share that quote to ask this question Do you make space for silence? Do you make space for silence? You see, the enemy would love nothing more than to keep you busy all the time. To have you run from one thing to the next to the next. And he has, got, got, he has become quite clever in that he uses good things to do that, right? Good things. They're not bad things. I'm looking around the room and I don't see anybody running from one murder to the next. Okay? I look around the room and I don't see anybody that's running from one bank heist to the next. No, I see people like myself that we run from one good thing to the next good thing to the next. And we have allowed all of the good things and all of that busyness and all of the, that noise and all of those crowds to fill our life so full that we never have time for him. That we never have time to sit and just be with our creator. Dad and I were, to give you kind of a, a lesser illustration, Dad and I were talking this week about him being in retirement. And he says, you know, I've heard it all my life all my life that when you retire, you're more busy than when you worked. He said, I never believed it until I lived it. He's like, I thought we'd have time to go camping. You know, I want to go fishing with you. I want to do these things with you. But man, it's just like my day fills up overnight. And I wake up the next morning and it's one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And then we end up not spending time with those that we retired to spend time with in the first place. Same is true for us. It's so easy to get up in the morning 
and to say, what do, what do I have to accomplish today? What do I have to do today? That we forget to say, who do I need to spend time with? We forget to say, who is important? Silence with him communicates his worth. Because in our culture, the only thing more valuable than our money is our time. So when we sit in silence, when we sit and trust him, when we sit and are in awe of him, when we sit to listen, when we sit to be still, when we give him our time and our attention with no agenda, seeking only his presence, there's nothing more valuable than that. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would come back up. And we're just going to have a time of response. A time to focus on him and, and to put aside those distractions. But before they start playing, I'm just going to ask you just to bow your heads and to close your eyes just for a moment that we would have a time of silence. And for some of us, that's uncomfortable. I get that. But a time just to say, Lord, what are you saying? Father,
as we sit here and we ponder upon the things that you are trying to say. For many of us, that may have been the longest we've been silent all week. That may be the longest that we've been undistracted all week. We are in need. We are in need of you. We are in need of time with you. And we're thankful that you invite us to that. That when you died on the cross, that the veil was ripped in two, that we may walk boldly into your presence as children of God that we may simply know you. Father, I pray this week that we would be intentional about finding time to sit with you, to hear your word, and to just listen. Father, I pray. I pray that you would speak well to us. That we would hear you clearly. And that we would go out into a busy world, to a loud world. Knowing that same trust. That same hope that David speaks of in your word. That we would know quiet even in the midst of chaos. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.